the National Archives podcast series. The Last Thing We Need is a sequel. Post-war cinema at the National Archives. Presented by Joe Pugh. Thank you for coming, everybody, and welcome to the uh, National Archives. And hi to anybody listening to this online. Um, so last year, I stood up here and talked about the National Archives records on early fiction films, and we talked about the reaction in Britain to the films of Cecil B. DeMille, D.W. Griffith. We talked about the propaganda classics produced during the Great War, and we covered a number of controversial silent films, and we ended by discussing the government's attempt to stop the production of Pan and Pressburger's The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. And as a presentation, that seemed to go OK. It was a nice audience. Some of you might have um, been there. Um, recording, you know, kind of fine. Um, obviously, what I should have done then was to go away and prepare something entirely new and original for you to enjoy today. But since this is the film business we're talking about, that didn't really seem appropriate. So instead, I'm going to just dish up exactly the same shtick as I did last time, exactly the same reheated formula. And the only difference is going to be that this time, we're going to be considering films released after 1945 rather than before. And also, you'll notice that the actors that I mentioned will be slightly cheaper than the actors that I mentioned in the first talk. That's not because I don't respect you as an audience, obviously, although I would remind you those tickets were free. Um, <laughs> it's just that original ideas are very difficult to come by, especially in a collection of this size. Uh, but because everyone knows that uh, sequels are never as good as the original, I will add a little something in for us to think about as we go along. Um, last November, the British film producer Jeremy Thomas, um, the man behind films like um, Bernardo Bertolucci's uh, The Last Emperor, David Cronenberg's Crash, Robert Proof Fence, Young Adam, Fast Food Nation, a man who knows about the, the film business, complained in The Observer about how he was forced to make his latest film overseas because while well, a Hollywood producer would receive financial incentives to work here. He, he didn't get those incentives. And he also complained that the British government didn't understand film, and all the film ministers he'd ever met had despised cinema as a medium, all very positive, upbeat uh, kind of stuff. And he rounded off by saying something that I found very interesting. He talked about, uh, he talked about fear, and what he said exactly was, was this. Governments seem frightened of the film business, perhaps because it's about ideas. Film is very powerful, so they are fearful. Um, now, there's no question that films can make people jumpy. I'm particularly alarmed by the creepy picture man in Ghostbusters 2, for instance. But the, the specific allegation that the British government is, is frightened of the film industry, I hope we can just have at the back of our minds as we talk about some of the films that are represented amongst our files. And some of them did generate extreme reactions amongst audiences um, within government. And in these cases, perhaps you might consider, you know, where, where, where does the fear lie? So I'd like to start in uh, 1949. Um, that, that August, Universal International Pictures held press screenings in New York and London for their latest film, a variety called it An Exciting Adventure, Well-Conceived, Directed and Lensed. However, in London, it didn't go down so well. This film is an insult to Britain, shrieked the Daily Graphic. US sends us a film not for the eyes of Britain, said the Evening Standard. Don't ban this film, pleaded the rather out-on-a-limp Sunday pictorial. And this film was called Sword in the Desert. And the reason for the reaction of the British press was that the film was set in Palestine and it followed a group of Jewish freedom fighters in their campaign against the British during the mandate. And this would have been sensitive at any time, I think, as the release, um, the release of uh, Peter Kosminski's The uh, Promise, I think, has demonstrated. But in fact, at this point, British troops had only left Palestine in May 1948, so that's less than 18 months before the film was first screened. Uh, Sword takes meticulous care to depict the British in a favourable light, said Variety. Um, Universal carefully inserts such quotes as, avoid gunfire if possible, men, there may be women and children. Or, this isn't a Jewish, Arab or British problem, it's a problem of all mankind. 
Um, and the Daily Express says that the, the British are portrayed in the film as uh, uh, they're, they're decent fellows but woefully inept. And the fact remains that in this film, you know, we're not we're not the goodies. You know, we're the ones who fire lots of bullets and never hit the heroes. That's you know, those are the characters that we're we're playing. The Sunday Pictorial said, you know, why should we bury our heads in the Palestine sand? This is our story, the story of Britain and its traditional role of world policeman, which is a phrase that has quite an interesting amount of resonance today. Um, after all this coverage, the Home Office asked the British Board of Film Censors what they proposed to do about the film, since there might be some possibility, though perhaps not a strong one, that its showing might provoke disorder. And what they found was that the BBFC had already passed the film with some cuts um, and did not apparently think it necessary to consult any government department. And I wondered if this meant that the BBFC had finally moved away from um, the sort of unhealthy, close relationship with government that um, we saw so much of uh, when I was uh, talking about our holdings last year. But in fact, it transpires that the BBFC approached the Foreign Office about the film, and they were told that it would be very undesirable if it were banned in this country, as this would have a bad effect in America and be used as evidence that the British government were afraid to let their people know the other side of the story. Um, so within government, every now, everyone really now pinned their hopes on the fact that the film wouldn't be shown, and everyone blamed the media. Um, Mr Watkins, this is the day-to-day -day head of the, the BBFC, his own view was that if it had not been for the mischievous line taken by the press, the film would probably have been received with mild contempt, though he admitted that the public reaction might have been similar to that on the notorious film depicting Errol Flynn as the conqueror of Burma. And this was objective Burma, exclamation mark, uh, which had to be pulled from release uh, after a week in the UK when outraged Britons protested at its suggestion that America had won the war in Burma. And the fact that Flynn, uh, an Australian, and therefore eligible for call-up, had remained in Hollywood uh, during the war, I mean, just made the whole thing worse. And the, the film didn't make it back, back into British cinemas until 1952, and it had a big uh, kind of apology text added to it. But for a few months, the problem seemed academic. There was no sign of the film's release. And in November, the BBFC wrote back to the Home Office and said they, th they thought there was no intention of the distributor showing it. But by January 1950, Home Office officials are writing, it's a pity this film has come to life again and it's showing may well give rise to trouble. And they arranged a private view of the film for themselves and concurred with the BBFC that the film as cut, and the BBFC did make some cuts, um, does not reflect on the British Army and does not contain anything which would have justified the BBFC in withholding their certificate. Nonetheless, it is likely to be repugnant to a good many English people, particularly ex-soldiers who served in Palestine and those whose relatives were murdered in Palestine by the Jewish movement, which is glorified in the film. There is, in addition, one scene right at the end of the film which might lead to strong protests, even among reasonable people. And in this ending, uh, basically the British deliberately let the main characters escape because it all just gets so Christmassy. They cite Bethlehem in the distance and this, this choir comes over the soundtrack singing, O come all ye faithful. And the intelligence officer said, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to all men, and just he ignores them kind of basically as they, they hide in this ditch. They, they, they get away with murder. And actually there's a cutting, uh, interesting little file from the... A Jewish Chronicles Tel Aviv correspondent, we said that actually this aspect of the film went down quite badly in Israel because apparently it, it is well known that even the most extreme terrorists never organised any attacks during Christian religious holidays. So the Home Office uh, thought maybe you know they could, they went back to the BBFC. The, the Board of Film Censors proposed to see distributor again and put it to him that this final scene ought to be cut 
Whether the distributors will agree to this is doubtful, as it will be impossible to substitute another ending without sending the film back to the United States for the purpose. And if this noisy finale is removed, the ending might be regarded as something of an anticlimax, <laughs> presumably because it would just stop. Um, anyway, the ending, the ending wasn't cut. Um, what instead began to come in was uh, specific intelligence of an organised campaign against Sword of the Desert. MI5 told the Home Office and Special Branch to expect a public demonstration against the film from Alfred Ho uh, Flockhart, Assistant Secretary of Union Movement, um, Oswald Mosley's post-war political party. And on the 1st of February, Sidney Salomon from the Jewish Board of Deputies gave a specific warning about the film's opening the next day at what's now um, Habitat on Regent Street, but what was then the New Gallery uh, Picture House. And Salomon warned, My board with other Jewish organisations did its best to advise against the showing of this picture, but unfortunately the representations were not listened to. An attempt may be made by fascists or anti-Semites to create disturbance either by actual conduct or by distribution of offensive literature. And he was told by Scotland Yard the necessary police arrangements have been made. The next day, the film opened at the New Gallery, and two afternoon screenings went off peacefully, but Chief Superintendent Robertson of Scotland Yard recorded that by the time the third uh, 6.25 showing came around, well-known members of what he calls the Union Movement and Group 43 turned up, and 43 Group was a Jewish um, anti-fascist protest organisation. This would have been one of their very last uh, public demonstrations because they, they disbanded a couple of months um, later. Um, bands of them tried to congregate outside the cinema, Robertson reported, and were moved on by police. The fascists, uh, sorry, my, my word, not his, confined their action to distributing pamphlets. Um, many of them brought, uh, bought tickets and entered the cinema to see the show. One man threw a milk bottle, otherwise the demonstrations were peaceful. But near the end of the final showing of the film at about 10.20pm, an audience member started protesting loudly, and he was ejected personally by Chief Superintendent Robertson. The, this man, who, with the bizarre name of Duke Pyle, went quietly away, but no sooner was he ejected than pandemonium broke out. Two smoke bombs were let off in the cinema. The bomber was attacked by several members of the audience, sustained minor injuries for being hauled away by police. A dead rat was found. And Robertson says, when the smoke cleared in the cinema, the picture was restarted and finished. A very determined audience. Um, <laughs> When the picture actually finished, groups of the union movement, 43 Group and others, congregated outside and were moved on by police. And as they left, one of the ejected demonstrators told Robertson, just wait and see what happens tomorrow. I shall be back with some paratroopers. And the next day, four boxes of lice were found in the auditorium. And Robertson told his bosses at the Met, in my view, this film should be banned. It's not clear whether he actually watched it. Um, the cinema holds 1,500 people, and it would be difficult to prevent trouble even if admission was refused to well-known union and other leaders. And Robertson's superior, um, J.R.H. Knott Bauer, told Frank Newsom at the Home Office, I'm convinced myself that it was only the presence of Chief Superintendent Robertson and some of his officers in the auditorium that prevented serious panic developing, which might easily have resulted in loss of life. So both the Met and the Home Office then urged London County Council to halt screenings of the film. And the council's clerk um, rang the new gallery and told them they were in contravention of their licence and they would have to pull the film um, or lose it. And this is because a rule for cinema exhibition um, was that no film should be exhibited which is likely to lead to disorder. Um, and Robertson then went back to the cinema to see what the response would be. And basically they, they finished the screening of the film they were on, about half an hour in, so they, they ran it to the end and then they closed early and everyone was turned away. And Robertson reported, during this time, 12 to 14 union movement members arrived in twos and threes and were told by police there would be no more showing of the picture. 
two remarks were made by them, bloody good job too, and it's just as well. Some of the 50 or 60 people outside the cinema when it closed clapped their hands and cheered, and the cinema opened with a new main feature. So the pro-Jewish American film had been successfully seen off by the fascists, not, not a terribly happy ending. And at their subsequent meeting, London County Council members asked harsh questions of the authorities who'd pulled the plug on the film, on whose initiative had it happened. Might it have been better dealt with by affording the cinema management and the public some protection in the exercise of their rights? Or more aggressively, does he now consider that the council has acted with pusillanimity in the face of a threat of hooliganism? And the fact is that the Met weren't prepared to mount the sort of police operation it would take to continue to show the film safely. It's admittedly unsatisfactory, wrote a Home Office official, mildly understating it, that this leaves it open to any violently-minded faction to secure the withdrawal of a film to which they object if they're prepared to run the risk of criminal proceedings. The only effective remedy is to bring criminal proceedings wherever possible and hope they will be more successful than those brought in connection with the new gallery affair. Two men were charged over the smoke bombs in the auditorium and neither one were convicted. So hands were wrung, basically, but nothing, nothing was done. The National Council of, of Civic Liberties complained, but judging by the cuttings in our file, the tiny little cuttings didn't get very much press attention. Um, and on the 10th of February, the Jewish Chronicle carried the story that it was announced on Wednesday that Sword in the Desert will not be shown in any part of Britain. And its editorial concluded, in 10 or 20 years, Sword in the Desert may have its place as a historical record. Today, the history is too close. The wounds are too recent. And uh, so before, I mean, the, the Britain in Palestine genre still isn't very large. There's a, there's a 1966 film actually called um, Cast a Giant Shadow, which deals with the formation of an army to deal with the, the 1948 um, Arab invasion. And it's Kurt Douglas, Topol, Michael Horden, which is a slightly random cast. And uh, we've also got a file, there's a film called um, Boani Junction, um, which is a kind of a Hollywood take on partition, starring Ava Gardner. Um, and uh, I know it sounds slightly baffling, but I think it sort of reminds us, of, I don't know, mainstream films now have rather kind of narrowed their, narrowed their, their kind of field of interest a bit than, um, than perhaps they, they were some decades ago. Anyway, let, let's move on from um, Palestine to Africa. Um, the colonial film was a much more established uh, genre, both in Britain and America. A film historian Geoffrey Richards has written of um, patriotism with profit to show how much money there was in the 1930s in, uh, in the imperial epic films like Sanders of the River, uh, The Drum, The Four Feathers. And what they all have in common is they made lots of money for the Corder family, and they're all extremely racist. Four Feathers has been called a monument of the politically incorrect. The Drum caused riots in Bombay and Madras, and Sanders of the River was later disowned by its African-American star, Paul Robeson. These weren't films that Africans could watch. But in 1942, Jack Beddington at the Ministry of Information seems to have had the idea for a completely different type of colonial epic, one that would support the war effort by stressing um, the new kind of approved colonial model of partnership and progress. And he commissioned a treatment from the novelist uh, Iana Robertson, who worked in the Ministry of Information's film division. Um, and after the war, she um, worked as a film critic for the BBC and MGM had her sacked for writing unnecessarily harmful film reviews. And she uh, wrote a treatment and she circulated copies of uh, what she called uh, a film called White Ants to colonial office officials. 
and she, uh, she writes a note to Bennington. Um, you know how it'll be. The two copies I sent them will pass slowly from hand to hand while elderly district officers gently decaying in Whitehall argue for weeks as to whether the houseboy should talk Swahili or Kusukuma, whereas he'll obviously talk English in the film, and it'll be weeks before anything can be done. Uh, why she was fired, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I think this is delightful, Bennington wrote decisively at the bottom of the treatment. What's the next step? So the piece, he sent the piece straight on to Sidney Box, the producer, who described it as an excellent basis for a feature. And he approached uh, a company called Two Cities Films, which was owned by the Italian producer, Filippo um, Di uh, Giudice, which quickly uh, entered negotiations with the Minister of Information. And Two Cities was an exciting kind of dynamic company, which was just about to release Noel Coward's In Which We Serve, and would go on to um, produce uh, Olivier's 1944 version of Henry V and his subsequent Hamlet. Del Giudice told Beddington, I consider that Mr. Thorold Dickinson is the right director for the film, and I'm requesting your help in securing his services. And uh, Del Giudice would have been attracted to Dickinson, probably because of his, his 1940 film Gaslight, which is based on the play by Patrick Hamilton. And towards the end of the 40s, Dickinson's version was suppressed, by, again by MGM, who went on to release their own version, directed by George Cocourt's, a much more famous version, with a contract that demanded that all prints of Dickinson's original be destroyed. They may also have had, a, Del Giudice may also have had in the back of his mind, Dickinson's first film, which uh, called The High Command, which was, was set in West Africa. Um, anyway, the problem was that Dickinson already had a job working for the Army Kinematograph Service, at which everyone agreed he was very successful. He'd made 17 films for them, including uh, Next of Kin, which is supposed to have, um, it's supposed to be the, the most kind of hard-hitting sort of a propaganda film. It's, when the day well is quite nasty, and this is meant to be very, very, very serious. So Dickinson was kind of seen as the best. But, you know, could the, could the best be had? Could Bennington get him? He wrote a begging letter to Paul Kimberley, director of the Army uh, Kinematograph Service, telling him about the project, which he describes quite beguilingly as a grand story of colonial administration spiced with the personal history of a young district officer and his struggle against the influence of witchcraft over the native population, blended with the private conflict in his own marriage in such a way as to skillfully combine dramatic value with excellent empire propaganda. <laughs> Both the colonial office and this ministry are keen to see this story translated to the screen with the least possible delay. In their opinion and in ours, there's only one British director capable of shooting this film and capturing on screen the atmosphere of the native village with the sinister influence of the witch doctor at work beneath the surface of apparent order and calm. Or the subtle play of emotion in the relationship between the district officer and his wife. That director, as you may easily guess, is Thorold Dickinson. Um, Kimberley was extreme magnanimous. He said, I realise that a subject of this nature that calls for skilled direction may be of first-class importance in the national effort, the war effort. Therefore, as you know, it's not my policy to adopt a dog-in-the-manger attitude, and he allowed Dickinson to make the choice himself, though it would be a great sacrifice to lose his services. And uh, so D Dickinson himself was to decide whether army or colonial work was of greater importance. And Beddington pitched the script to him and wrote back to Kimberley. He likes the story very much and realises it could be made into a very important film. And Dickinson chose the colonial project, and it was a decision that probably he later regretted, as we'll find out. The potential problems involved in shooting a British film in Africa in wartime were formidable. Dickinson, I'm sorry to say, suffered all of them. He went straight out to Africa at the beginning of 1943 to shoot test footage and work on the script with Joyce Carey, 
um, the Irish novelist who they, they'd hired for the, uh, the, the purpose, who'd taken with a man, Joyce, Joyce Carey was a man. The plan was to shoot. In fact, most of the small crew's equipment was torpedoed and sunk and never made it to Africa. They could only take photographs, which they developed in a makeshift a dark room on a coffee plantation. And when they sent their new script back to London, it went down like a lead balloon. The difference between this draft script and Arnott's treatment is the difference between chalk and cheese. Arnott's treatment was a delightful little piece of literary camembert. What we now have is a whacking hunk of feature film chalk. And uh, the officials at the ministry seemed to have been concerned that the film was neither uh, kind of, it had, it had stopped being kind of cerebral, but it wasn't really popular either. The writers seem shy of following the strict logic of their own formula. The story denies us the normal, healthy, though obvious, satisfactions of the ready-made, reach-me-down film. For instance, we're denied any love interest between the district commissioner and the woman doctor. Their relationship stops short at the development of mutual respect and admiration. The audience will expect more, and why should they be denied it? <laughs> Two, why should we have to meet in the African jungle a German professor of logic? Let us by all means have lions, tigers, witch doctors and crocodiles, but of all creatures on earth, not, I beg, a German professor of logic. <laughs> Three, nobody gets eaten by the crocodiles. The German professor of logic, if we must have him, is an obvious <laughs> candidate. Um, and I should stress all of the changes asked for are, are like this. They're not about putting more propaganda into the script. The only interest that I can see in any of these files uh, is about kind of bums on seats. And a rewrite was commissioned, which seemed to go down a bit better. But back in London, uh, they went to the uh, West African Students' Union to get uh, extras, and they complained because the script contained a witch doctor, which they said was unrealistic. Meanwhile, permission to shoot in the National Gallery was refused because Dame Myra Hess wouldn't allow a scene to be shot with a black conductor, which was integral to the script. Meanwhile, back in Africa, the director and his crew came down with various fevers and continued to shoot nothing. They came back to London to find arguments over the script continuing, but to quote the file, its basis is still the fact that the coloured man is a human being with all the attributes of the white man, even if his mental development has not yet reached that stage. <laughs> nice, yeah. The Colonial Office asked permission for the film to be shot in Technicolour, and Beddington agreed to this. And this is a huge deal. This made Men of Two Worlds only the 16th British film ever to be shot in Technicolour. And this film stock was almost impossible to get hold of during the war. And in fact, Beddington refused it, probably to give it to this film, to Powell and Pressburger when they asked permission to shoot A Matter of Life and Death in 1944. They had to go off and make I Know Where I'm Going um, in black and white first. Beddington had chosen to marshal the, ministries, uh, the Ministry of Information's resources behind this picture. And in wartime Britain, I mean, this was like having Hollywood megabucks behind you, but better because the Ministry could requisition everything and money you know, actually wouldn't have been able to get you all the stuff that they could get. So by December 1943, Dickinson was back in Africa and chirpily cabling the production office in London. Script conference at Confluence Blue and White Nile unanimously regrets your absence. And the producer cabled back, deeply impressed by news of script conference at Confluence Blue and White Nile, much regret my absence. So they were finally shooting, surely it was all about to come together. No, it was hot and difficult, the crew caught malaria, but that wasn't the worst problem. The worst problem was with the Technicolor film stock. It had a six-week shelf life. It was already past date 
when it was opened in Africa. Then there were delays flying it after the footage had been shot, flying it out from Nairobi and Ghana to Florida and on to LA for processing. When it got to LA, Technicolor were on strike. And by the time the film was processed, writes Geoffrey Richards, the colour was running down the negative. And it was now summer 1944, 90% of Dickinson's footage was unusable. He had one more week of shooting in Africa. He found this out one week before he left. So all that work for virtually all the film then had to be shot from scratch at Denham, slightly less exotic, in February 1945. But it still had its Technicolor. And it had, uh, uh, the finished film has this outstanding score from Sir Arthur Bliss. And in November 1945, the film's horribly, horribly late, um, Filippo del Giudice was able to tell Bennington, in my opinion, Thorold Dickinson has done a masterpiece, which will contribute highly to the better knowledge by audiences all over the world what the British Empire is doing in connection with the colonies and the spreading of civilization among the backward peoples. And in fact, the film wasn't released until September 1946, by which time the Ministry of Information had ceased to exist. And that's why we, we don't have any um, press reports on the file because there's nobody to, there's nobody to file them. Um, it's taken so long to shoot, there's, you know, the war's over, there's no, there's no ministry. Geoffrey Richards calls Men of Two Worlds too talky and schoolmasterish and declares it cost £600,000 only to be greeted as a well-meaning bore. And over in America, Variety called the film a long stretch of mumbo-jumbo unrelieved by imaginative treatment or pictorial thrills. And they, they add... It's nearly two hours before the district commissioner bashfully calls Dr. Munro Catherine, and nothing comes of that either. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, that those criticisms that the ministry had that weren't then changing the script, that, those, those then come out in those, in those critical um, reports. Um, I want to now talk about one of the more bizarre quirks of British film in, uh, history. In 1946, Sir Stafford Cripps, who was president of the Board of Trade, was given a report that told him, as if it wasn't already pretty obvious by a quick trip to the pictures, that three companies owned the majority of cinemas in Britain. And he made a logical deduction. If a film wasn't picked up by those exhibitors, it was unlikely to make a decent profit. And that meant that those few capitalist plutocrats um, could control what... Britons were watching, and that wasn't acceptable to one of the most left-wing individuals to sit around a cabinet table. So to ensure that monopoly cinema chains couldn't control um, the nation's viewing, he set up an independent film selection committee to watch out for films of significant entertainment value, which had been passed over by the big cinema circuit, and recommend that they be shown. And all of these cinema companies were what's called vertically—they were vertically integrated, which is to say they made films and they also showed films, and that made independent producers even more vulnerable um, with their finished feature films struggling for distribution. And the role of this committee was was later formalised in an Act of Parliament. Now, for years, the committee hardly watched any films, but uh, the list is very short. But in the spring of 1950, to everyone's surprise, they suddenly found a film that they thought should be shown, and in fact, as it turned out. It had to be shown. The Home Office had no powers to ban films, but it turned out that the Board of Trade could force them to be screened by one of these major exhibitors. Harold Wilson had numerous brushes with the film industry as president of the Board of Trade. He was forced to deal with the Hollywood boycott of 1947 and 8, when the government here ratcheted up uh, tariffs on imported, um, well, just about everything. Uh, but uh, by 75% on uh, films, and Hollywood just w w wasn't willing to pay that, so film imports um, ceased. 
And, but he also established the National Film Finance Corporation to fund uh, British films, which, which lasted for, for quite a long time. Um, in, in May 1950, reported Wilson, only five films had ever been submitted to the Film Selection Committee. And in fact, excluding Chance for a Lifetime, there are only three. He seems to count some of those films twice. Brass Monkey, which was a crime drama, which uh, is Carol Landis's last film, that seems to be the only thing that people... Um, there's, a, there's a Just William film called William Comes to Town, and uh, this thing called Torment, which is a slightly weird-sounding thriller about two brothers who are both crime writers. One's good, uh, one's a psychopath. Are they twins? I have no idea. But in Chance of a Lifetime, I think Stafford Cripps' kind of original vision was fulfilled. The greedy capitalist scum at Rank and ABC had overlooked this little film about British workers. And in fact, it was a film that, on the face of it, someone like the Ministry of Labour might have written themselves as a kind of... Uh, what happens is sort of recalcitrant factory workers ditch their hated management only to be forced to work together and bond when a big new order comes in. <laughs> or to put it another way, it is concerned with the implications of change from the traditional paternalistic management worker relationship to one of much closer contact and mutual recognition of human values. And who wouldn't want to see a film like that? Um, the selection committee recognised that the film has not got all the conventional box office attractions, which was the reason the circuits were reluctant to book it, but thought it would do well if it were cleverly exploited and a rather special appeal were made to people rather out of the run of regular filmgoers who would probably find it very interesting and enjoyable if they knew enough about it to go and see it. And the film, uh, written, directed and starring Bernard Miles, features a lot of well-known uh, actors, Pat Troughton, Hattie Jakes, Peter Jones, Eric Chitty, Compton McKenzie, Kenneth Moore, lots of kind of familiar faces in it. Um, the cinema chains were apoplectic with rage as they realised there was literally nothing they could do. The government was actually going to force them to show this turkey, heedless of the financial cost to themselves. The MP Woodrow Riot, uh, Wyatt, writing in the Tribune, was, was quite clear. This week is a landmark in the history of the British film industry. For the first time since films began to be made, one of the great cinema circuits is staging a film premiere, not because it wants to, but because it has been ordered to by the president of the Board of Trade. And since it had never happened before, they'd, they'd had to quickly find a way to pick you know, which of the circuits, Odeon, Gaumont or ABP, should be forced to show it. And they literally just they put the names, that they invited them in, and they put the names in a hat. And they, 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 did, they did just pull one out. And um, Odeon won, or should that be lost? <laughs> its owner, J. Arthur Rank, was publicly scathing about the film's prospects. I have not seen the film myself, but I'm advised that it is not a good one. There's nothing to protect us if we lose a great deal of money by showing it. By publishing the box office figures, we should show clearly to the board what it has done. And the prospect of a company, a cinema company, bad-mouthing a film it was itself exhibiting was a little bit bizarre. And Harold Wilson drafts this, this rather kind of carefully polite notice to slap Rank Dan. Uh, he, he was told, I feel like he'd be sort of smoking a pipe while I said him anyway, the president is naturally counting on full cooperation from the Odeon circuit in showing the film. In this connection, the statements attributed to Mr Rank in recent issues of the press criticising the quality of the film hardly seem likely to be an inducement to the public to see it. The President trusts that the same efforts will be made in advertising and popularising the film as would apply in the case of films produced by the Rank organisation. Uh, but just as Rank seemed to be put in its place, suddenly the Ministry of Labour stuck its oar in. And they went to a screening that the Central Office of Information had organised 
And the, the permanent secretary at the, at the Ministry of Labour, Sir Godfrey Ince, was just completely appalled. He said, this film can do nothing but harm to the cause of greater friendliness and understanding between management and labour. It will cause great resentment on the part of manufacturers and bankers who are shown as being quite ready in their own selfish interest to sabotage the national effort. Imagine that. Um, it will be welcomed by communists for whom it will, be, it will provide much ready-made propaganda. And Wilson's loyal civil servant comments, I think Sir Godfrey Ince's letter is thoroughly silly. I only hope no one in the rank organisation will discover the Ministry of Labour's attitude as they're already doing their best to damage the prospects of the film. And the Board of Trade attempts to simply kind of just, just press on. I mean, how long can, can they just stonewall him? But Ince sends him another note. He says, I wrote to you urging you not to show the film owing to its dangerous propaganda. I assume that my representations have been ignored. In these circumstances, I must ask you to hold up the issue in order to give my minister the opportunity of raising it at the cabinet, which extraordinarily he, he did. So this, 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 this film, Chance for a Lifetime, was, was discussed, at, um, discussed at cabinet. And the cabinet secretary's notebooks give a kind of terse account of the discussion. The Ministry of Labour, George Isaacs, told his colleagues, employers, organisations objecting, film encouraging communism. Um, Act of 48 empowers me to direct that a film be shown, Wilson replied. I act on advice of independent tribunal. Many people have seen it and think it okay. Board of Trade can't go against the decision of tribunal, declares Prime Minister Attlee flatly, and that's that's it, apart from the fact that Isaacs keeps kind of carping in private. He says, the detrimental effect which, in the view of responsible persons, the showing of this film will have on worker management relations in industry, propaganda value for communists, and its encouragement to those who advocate workers' control of industry. He warned of the storm which may well break out. Um, and in fact, actually, uh, Wilson seems to have been completely, sublimely unconcerned about all of this. And he, he, he writes back to the, the ministry, at first quoting um, Herbert Morrison, the showing of a feature film in these circumstances could hardly have any dramatic effect on industrial relations. The Minister of Labour's advisers are pitching this rather high. And then he goes in and starts being rather lecturing and patronising himself. It's fatally easy to exaggerate the influence of the cinema on the minds of its audiences who go to it as a matter of easy habit or to get away from familiar home surroundings or for the pleasures of proximity to a, fa a favoured companion. Does he mean Mary? <laughs> or for any one of a hundred reasons, but not to be preached at or edified. If indeed this film did contain an obvious subversive message, I should expect audiences to react against it and not to it because they would resent being got at in that way. And later that day, Wilson announced the film's release date in the House of Commons and he denied uh, questions uh, came from MPs asking him whether Rank had deliberately scheduled the film um, in the quiet summer months in order to kill it. And he called that a bit over-suspicious, although it seems quite plausible to me. And it's noticeable that a proportion of these playing dates abruptly changed to September, as if someone realised what, what Rank were up to. Cinema goers may have reflected that it might not have been Harold Wilson's name in lights on the Empire Leicester Square, but he personally had made Chance of a Lifetime's premiere happen as surely as anyone in the cast or crew. And I think that we know that for a fact because there's a, the very first document at the front of the file is a handwritten note from the film's director, Bernard Miles, asking for Wilson to see the film and if there's anything he can do to smooth the path to release. And Wilson just scribbles in the corner, yes, I will see it. 
isn't this a case for the tribunal? So it was him who suggested it to Miles, who probably had no idea of this you know, obscure quango. He, I, I think probably the idea to submit it to the committee came from Wilson. And the result was that every Odeon showed it. All the venues are listed in the file, like some kind of Flanders and Swan train song. The Electric in Sorby Bridge, the Slough Ambassador, the Barnsley Princess, the Glossop Empire, the Troquette on Tower Bridge Road. I'm sorry, I'm coming over a bit. Um, Here is entertainment, said the Evening News. Why do they have to use threats to get this film shown? For the News Chronicle, it was a worthwhile and well-made independent British movie. And in the Sunday Times, Dillis Powell was also broadly positive. Let me not exaggerate its qualities. It's not an outstanding film, but it is a good, lively film about people you can believe in. The Odin group may think they lost the toss. Personally, I think they won it. And in America, Motion Picture Herald uh, thought the film very good and declared, discriminating audiences will enjoy the fresh theme and smooth presentation, which makes it sound a bit like toothpaste. Um, and they, but they write the genre down as socialist experiment, which I find quite cool. Um, but for the Daily Mail, it was only a, a reasonably entertaining minor film, and it was never a financial success. There's just one letter in the file from the kind of the coalface, as it were, from a cinema in Glasgow, seemingly in response to an inquiry about how the film's faring. And it simply says, I could answer that by stating that so far, it's the biggest flop we've ever touched. And at rank, John Davis claimed that Chance of a Lifetime had cost Odeon £30,000. The act was never used again. The committee kept occasionally watching films, Green Grow the Rushes, the very exciting sounding hijinks in society, um, and rejecting them. The only other film mentioned in connection with the committee is the film The Leather Boys, which is a slightly odd title, which makes the film sound like it might be about gay bikers. Um, but actually, the, the really extraordinary thing about it is that it is about gay bikers, which is quite unusual in the 60s, obviously. It was held up by British Lion in 1963 as a film that the circuits wouldn't release. And in later files, government officials wonder why more independent film producers haven't submitted films to the, the committee and suggesting it's because that, the fact that they're not submitting the films demonstrates that actually the system must be very open. But I think when you read the files, it's really clear that if Wilson hadn't pushed this through at every stage, the film wouldn't have been released in the way that it was. He had to come, uh, overcome opposition from uh, cinemas, from industry, from section of the press, from Ministry of Labour, you know, right up to Cabinet. What I'm not clear about is why he decided to stick so doggedly to his guns. It might have been bloody-mindedness. It has been suggested that he was persuaded by the film's producer, and there's no evidence of that in any of the files I've seen, but I can believe it because Chance of a Lifetime's producer was Filippo Del Giudice, the same man who'd sweet-talked the Ministry of Information and the Colonial Office right through the saga of Men of Two Worlds. Um, but this, this was his kind of his last stand. He went back to Italy when this film flopped and he never made another uh, film. If British audiences weren't keen to embrace factory workers taking control of the means of production, they were usually pretty keen to watch Stuart Granger smouldering at somebody. Um, in 1954, Gainsborough Pictures' tale of Regency romance starring the said Granger and Elizabeth Taylor and with um, Peter Ustinov playing um, Prince Regent. Um, was selected for the accolade of the Royal Film Performance, inaugurated in 1946 by A Matter of Life and Death. Now, I don't know very much about the Queen's taste in films, um, but we do know one thing for a fact, and that's that she thought Beau Brommel was rubbish. The Prime Minister asked me to look into this when he returned from his audience of the Queen. 
The Queen had told him what a bad film it was, and he, on his own initiative, wanted to see what could be done about it for the future. And this would turn out to be the cue, this, this audience at which the Queen met Churchill and just mentioned in passing how much she'd hated Beau Brummel, was the cue for other civil servants to air their grievances about the role for film, uh, film performance, which they seem to have found quite cathartic. There's no doubt at all that the quality of the films shown to Her Majesty on the last four occasions, to mention only those I've had the misfortune to attend, has ranged from the mediocre down to the vulgar and distressing. And those other three films, just for the record, were uh, Where No Vultures Fly, which is uh, an Ealing film set in East Africa, um, Because You're Mine, starring Maria Lanza, and uh, Walt Disney's Rob Roy was the other one with um, Richard Todd and um, Clint Johns. I'll leave you to guess which of those were vulgar and which were distressing and which were mediocre. Um, the whole evening is a long and garish ordeal, and it's not surprising that both Her Majesty herself and outside critics should ask whether the selection of the main film to be shown could not be radically improved. And this was hurriedly arranged, so that the next year Madge got uh, Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief, and in 1956 it was Powell and Pressburger's smash hit The Battle of the River Plate. So that's what happens when they don't like the film. What do you do when they do like the film? My dear Norman, I saw the very good film called The Dam Busters the other night, and in this it was said that I'd expressed strong personal support for the operation and had given directions on the subject. I certainly remember it quite well. So this is um, 25th of May 1955, letter from Winston Churchill to the Cabinet Secretary. And Churchill had stood down as Prime Minister about six weeks before, which explains why he's thinking about the election results with about the same level of interest that he's thinking about the dam busters. <laughs> um, he's, not, he's not Prime Minister under so, um, And in fact, the, the party got a substantial majority of 60 under Anthony Eden. So you'll see he, uh, he asks for any material or record of the decision. And what he's presumably referring to is a, is a key scene in the dam busters in which Barnes-Wallace... Um, the bouncing bomb inventor, um, he's just quit Vickers because it won't uh, support his project. He kind of he storms out in a huff and he's contemplating growing runner beans and fixing his chicken coop and suddenly has a meeting with the previously not terribly helpful official from the Ministry of Aircraft Production. And this guy, his exact line is, orders have just come through from Downing Street that it's got to go ahead right away. The Prime Minister is enthusiastic about it. So you can see why Winston liked it. It's not just the screenplay and the Eric Coates score. It's the fact that suddenly the whole thing is about him. Um, so, you know, but the old man's asked the question. So off went various phone calls around Whitehall. Um, however, the problem that began to emerge was that there was no evidence at all for Churchill's strong personal support. The Air Ministry historical section had been unable to find anything in their records indicating that the matter was referred to Sir Winston Churchill. All Norman Brooke could find um, was the text of Churchill's telegram of congratulation to the squadron. They've struck a blow which will have far-reaching effects, you know, whatever. Um, I imagine you had discussed it with Portal, the Air Minister, he writes, but there's no trace in the records. That's so not enough for the monomaniacal former Prime Minister. I'm quite sure I heard about this matter in January 1943. I authorised my influence to be used to the full, and this was four months at least before the telegram in May to which you refer. Would it not be possible to inquire from the author of the book on what they base their reference? I have a clear recollection of having expressed a decided opinion at a very early stage. So civil servants go away, they read the book, written in 1951 by the Australian journalist and veteran Paul Brickhill, 
not conclusive. So they write to Brickhill, and I, his, um, I hope palatial, because he was a POW in Starlight Luft III during the war, villa outside Florence, and Brickhill tells them he doesn't know. It was a provoking point never clearly solved. During research five years ago, no one knew for certain how the green light was given. I do suggest you ask Portal about it, and if he has the answer, I also would be delighted to hear. Emissary Strokel Branch calls this answer not very helpful, so they, they ask Lord Portal, and he says, my memory of the early history of Operation Upkeep is so rusty that I'm afraid I really can't help. My impression on seeing the film, and I, I, I love the idea that the war cabinet, the ex-war cabinet, watch World War II films. How, <laughs> how great is that? That's, that's, just, that's brilliant. Um, my impression on seeing the film was that the opposition to the project had been greatly exaggerated. I certainly do not remember having to invoke the PM's authority. So sorry not to be able to help Portal. They asked Churchill's former principal private secretary out of the country at the time. The ex-deputy chief of the air staff remembers nothing. And finally, Sir Norman is forced to admit to the great man, I have failed entirely to find any trace of a minute or directive about this by you. This, I can assure you, in spite of the most diligent search, we followed up every line of inquiry we could think of, but none has yielded any positive result. The only conclusion I can draw from all this is that the plans for the development of this weapon and the projected operation against the dams were put to you orally by the Chief of the Air Staff, and that it was in conversation with him that you expressed your approval and support for them. I don't know, what, what, what do you think? I mean, do we think this is kind of people remembering what they want to remember? Hold, hold that thought. One of the notable British films of 1963 was Sammy Going South, directed by Alexander McKendrick. And this is another kind of testing African shoot. It uh, was a career revival for McKendrick, who hadn't made a film since Sweet Smell of Success in 1957. In the interim, he'd been sacked from two films, The Devil's Disciple and The Guns of Navarone, and reduced to shooting Horlicks commercials. Um, this wasn't a picnic. Crew members were bitten by snakes. Edward G. Robinson had a heart attack. But the result was a spiky little film that unfortunately failed to find much of an audience. And the, in fact, so the, co the company that made it went bust, in fact. The BFI's monthly film bulletin calls it, very unfairly, a prep school guide to darkest Africa. Anyway, Anthony Eden, now Lord Avon in retirement, begins as Churchill began by writing to the Cabinet Secretary, Bert Trend, um, newly appointed, and he's considering legal action over Sammy going south, which I understand is to be seen by the Queen Mother as this year's royal performance film. It, it, it was. This opens with a story of a 10-year-old boy suddenly orphaned during a British air raid on Suez. This is presumably in the 1956 operations. I've not seen this film myself, but it's been pointed out to me that there was no British bombing raid on Suez, nor, to the best of my belief, was there one on Port Said. The only air raids were on aerodromes and on the Voice of Egypt, the last after warning. And Eden continues, In these circumstances, I've been urged to take action in respect of this film, and I'm considering doing so. And he asks Trent to check the facts with the uh, Air Ministry or the Ministry of Defence. So much trouble was taken to avoid the loss of civilian life during these operations. Um, that I do not feel that a British film should be allowed to pass, which maligns British conduct. Um, I have to say, during the Suez Crisis, Nye Bevan told the House of Commons, I resent most bitterly this unconcern for the lives of innocent men and women. It may be that the dead in Port Said are 100, 200, 300, 
If it was only one, we have no business to take it. Sorry, slight, slight aside. Anyway, Trend asked the MOD if Eden's right. Was there no air raid on Suez or that might be reasonably construed as such? The Ministry of Defence refreshes the former Prime Minister's memory. A report by Sir Edwin Herbert estimated that there were some 2,750 civilian casualties in Portside, including 650 dead. The parents of the child in the film were killed in Portside and not, as Lord Avon says, in Suez. It's true that all the attacks on Portside were by rockets and cannon fire and that no stage was any bomb dropped on or in the environs of Portside. However, I should not have thought that a case based on the distinction between bombing and ground attack would have carried a great deal of weight in this context. And Eden decides, funnily enough, not to pursue the case, which I suspect wouldn't have gone that well for him. At this point, I was going to spend a lot of time talking about our holdings on Ealing Studios films. In the 1950s, the studio made a number of films looking at the work of government services. Um, the Blue Lamp, uh, famously, was a hugely successful film produced with the Metropolitan Police. And uh, years later, it had a follow-up, The Long Arm, which followed the Plain Clothes uh, uh, division. Pool of London, fascinating uh, little film, terrific performance by Earl, Earl Cameron there, um, was made with the input of the Customs Service. And both these films were directed by Basil Dearden. Um, and what those close links between the filmmakers and the government mean is that we can follow the development of these films, as we could with Men of Two Worlds, um, in, a, in a lot of detail, which is very unusual in the files here, because government sees... For example, successive drafts of the scripts. It helps with locations and props. It's also interested in the outcome of the completed film, so it collects press cuttings and publicity. In 1956, the Home Office received a number of complaints about the film Rock Around the Clock. Unusually, they weren't from members of the public, and they weren't about the film, which had been banned by a number of councils. The complaints were coming from cinema exhibitors who were horrified that for once, this censorship was costing them serious money. The Cinema Exhibitors Association insisted the film had been shown at about 400 cinemas with very little trouble. The Home Office's legal advisers were unsure. You will no doubt recall that newspapers reported that the showing of this film was accompanied by disorder, both inside cinemas and in the highway outside. The film had a use certificate and was, to an ordinary observer, as opposed to some you know, hormone-crazed pubescent, one assumes, entirely innocuous. The disorder was associated with a particular type of music featured in the film, known as rock and roll. It would be difficult to say that the film caused the disorder. Disorderly patrons had read in the newspapers reports of similar behaviour on previous showings in other places. The reason for the original disorder could presumably be only given, if at all, by a student of the psychology of hooliganism. Um, but the exhibitors didn't agree. They said the Circuit Management Association had shown the film at 210 theatres and complaints had come from only 25. The audience had exhibited high spirits, but there had been little damage. Accounts in the press had been greatly exaggerated. In one case, a press photographer had set young people dancing in the street to get pictures. The film had been banned by some 80 authorities without a due sense of responsibility. And this was taking too easy a line when what was involved was a piece of valuable property. So with something a bit quirky, you know, it's all a bit too much trouble to sort out, but as soon as it's a, it's a property, like Rock Around the Clock, now suddenly how the film can continue to be shown becomes a matter of pressing urgency. I understand that the rhythm of some particular tune therein proves very exciting to some people. There's a note in the file. Yes, a number of musical items, confirms one of his colleagues, but they're played in dance halls with no untoward results. Um, 
the cinema exhibitors association they were particularly annoyed that many of the licensing authorities actually didn't even bother watching the film here's the list of places uh, from which rock around the clock was banned and you see there's a wide geographical i mean the you know the places there belfast brighton hove south shields real i mean it's it's all over it's all over the country um the bbfc's view on rock around the clock was that it was basically the same as um Anglo amalgamated shake, rattle and roll, and Warner Brothers rock, rock, rock. So the cash-ins, basically. They appeared to be family entertainment of a harmless character they've been placed in the U category. We reformed the film was shown in 415 towns without any incident whatever. In these circumstances, it may be that the interest displayed in this form of rhythm and the excitement aroused by it have subsided, and that any action likely to attract undesirable publicity would do more harm than good. Um, with their kind of finger on the pulse of popular music there. Um, the Home Office, on this occasion, were quite sympathetic. They seemingly had no powers, but what they did was to contact the Association of Municipal Corporations, and that sent a private and confidential letter round to all the local licensing authorities. Now, this is a sort of tactic that they used to use um, in perhaps the 30s to try and ensure that films wouldn't be shown. So it's quite interesting seeing the kind of the mechanism in reverse as they try and encourage... Um, uh, councils to be more lenient. Uh, it's not clear whether this intervention did lead to a relax in, the, in, in, in local bans. All I can say is that in the past local authorities did respond to those, those letters. Let's stay on the subject of deals. In the 1930s, um, Alexander Corder put a considerable amount of time and effort into trying to film a version of the life of T. Lawrence in lots of Arabia, and he had in mind Leslie Howard to play the role. He was opposed by just about everybody. Um, Lawrence himself didn't want a film to be made, the Foreign Office didn't want a film to be made, the Turkish government didn't want a film to be made, and the British government in Palestine also objected. So, uh, you know, nothing, nothing happened. We have, we have some files about it, but it, he, it, it never, never got off the drawing board. In, uh, in 1951, Columbia Pictures contacted the Foreign Office and they explained that it was their intention to make a film on the life of Lawrence of Arabia, concentrating naturally on the campaign in the desert against the Germans and the Turks. Columbia wanted the answer to one quite pressing concern. If the film produced a hostile reaction in the Middle East, would the Foreign Office demand production be stopped? And if the reaction was hostile on release, would the Foreign Office demand it be withdrawn from distribution in the UK? And presumably Columbia had Corder's experience in mind. And in fact, they told the Foreign Office they'd made preliminary inquiries elsewhere already. The Turks were unlikely to object to the film, provided that they themselves were portrayed with reasonable sympathy. Can't imagine a film company being concerned about that today. And those Arab leaders who had been consulted didn't think that exception would be taken. And to further lull the kind of foreign office, they, they say they're going to hire a uh, historical consultant who's an ex-foreign office uh, guy. I told Mr Thorpe, this total U-turn by the foreign office, I told Mr Thorpe I didn't think his company need to have any great concern. In the first place, I doubted whether the film would in fact produce any very serious adverse reaction in Arab countries. If we and the Arabs were on good terms with each other, the Arabs would welcome the film as portraying English and Arab soldiers fighting side by side. If relations were not good, the Arabs would probably point to the film and events on which it was based as evidence of how they'd won the war in the Middle East for us. In the second place, I told Mr Thorpe that in 
in my view, the Foreign Office would not interfere in a matter of this kind, which was a purely commercial enterprise, because we know the Foreign Office takes no interest in commerce. So uh, this was a complete reversal of their former position. The industry had sat it out until circumstances had changed, and they could, they could tell the story that they wanted to tell. But uh, Columbia wanted more than kind of a fireside chat. What they wanted was a, a letter in writing saying the Foreign Office approved of the making of the film. And this did make the Foreign Office a little bit nervous, and they consulted with colleagues in the Board of Trade. Was it really right for the Foreign Office to say it approved or disapproved of any film? Again, forgotten their experience recorded quite quickly, and indeed with Sword in the Desert when they expressed a view. Um, and in the end, they settled on a form of words telling Colombia it's not the practice of His Majesty's government to interfere in matters of this kind. Absolutely rubbish. Your company need have no apprehension on that score. Indeed, His Majesty's government do not even have the necessary powers to undertake intervention of the kind your company fears. Of course, Colombia knew the law full well, just as it knew the British government could make filming extremely difficult if it chose. But they, you know, they, got the, they, were, they were pleased and relieved. And a mere 11 years later, the glittering David Lean film had its premiere in London, of course, because this is the King's Speech of its day, the most glittering British film of 1962, which then cleaned up at the Academy Awards in 1963, winning seven Oscars. Except, was this a British film? This is always a perennial question. It used to be much more significant because of the quota system, which meant that until the early 80s, British cinemas were compelled, here's that word again, to ensure that 30% of their screenings were British films. And so what we have here at the archives are the files by which the Britishness of many films, including Lawrence, was assessed. There were strict requirements as to what proportion of the cast and crew were British, how much footage was allowed to be shot outside the country, where editing was taking place. Was a producer British? Sam Spiegel wasn't. Was he resident in Britain for how long each year? You know, all, all, all this kind of stuff. Once upon a time, the Board of Trade would have held a file for these details on every single official British film. Overwhelmingly, these files have not been selected for preservation at the National Archives, and they've been destroyed. Lawrence's file survived probably because it has some quite nice publicity in it, and because also the level of complication of deciding whether or not it qualified, and also because of the dreadful embarrassment when the film was selected as an American film at the Acapulco Film Festival, and Columbia Pictures grovel to the Board of Trade, or, you know, everyone understood it was British, really, this, this kind of thing. So the number of films that come equipped with an actual 100% genuine certificate of Britishness is not large, perhaps more still exist out there behind filing cabinets in Wardour Street or locked in basements in Burbank, California. But here and now, I can, I can out you know, what we've got here. From Russia with Love, or fairly obvious, Cubby Broccoli was resident in the UK for tax purposes. Consequently, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, British quota picture, despite some of the accents. Here's one you might not have guessed. 2001, Space Odyssey, English as Apple Pie, although it was the American entry at the 1967 Moscow Film Festival. <laughs> Wasn't it enough they'd won the space race? You know, anyway. We're coming to the end now. Whether I'll, I'll quite get to the end, I don't know, but we'll, I'll do my best. Um, I want to begin to draw to a close by talking about some of the most difficult film releases of the early 70s. This was a period full of pitfalls and controversy for the British Board of Film Censors, who were heavily criticised for being too lenient in a way they hadn't generally experienced in the 1950s and 1960s. And ultimately, this criticism cost the BBFC its new director, Stephen Murphy, who was appointed in 1971 and stepped down in 1975. A hint of what these new difficulties might be like had been faced by his predecessor, John Trevelyan, when the Metropolitan Police raided the Open Space Theatre, which was showing the film Flesh, produced by Andy Warhol, directed by Paul Morrissey. And they seized the film, the screen, and parts of the projector. And this case ended in total farce. The Met were pilloried for letting the film run almost to the end before stopping it. 
for not being aware that the screening was Don Trevelyan's idea and for failing to secure a prosecution for obscenity, instead being forced to complain about the fire safety in the building. And we've got, I, I found one file on this famous case, I, which I had opened, I did a freedom of information request, and unfortunately there's almost nothing in it. Whatever information the Met hold is still sort of Scotland Yard, which is a great shame. Um, Stephen Murphy now faced a hail of criticism for his support of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. When Leeds City Council were considering whether to ban the film, he wrote an impassioned letter defending it, telling them few films have been received with such critical acclaim. A member of the council complained bitterly at being presented with this one-sided view from, of all people, Britain's chief censor, and complaining to his local MP, he wrote, by what quirk of fate is it that the secretary of the BBFC turns out to be himself anti-censorship? In my view, this should be a job entrusted not to a trendy academic, <laughs> but to a man qualified by achievement to be wholly impartial. My impression is that he is as inequipped to be a censor of films as would be the town drunk to be the arbiter of the merits of licensing hours. <laughs> the Home Office were alarmed at Murphy's bullish attitude, and one civil servant writes, Mr Murphy will cause a lot of damage if this unsolicited and arrogant effusion is a true indication of what he's like. Let us hope that it is not. Certainly, the Home Secretary, Reginald Maudlin's reaction to Clockwork Orange was much more measured. Um, he took the time to watch it before forming a view, which he couldn't say of all his predecessors. And he, requ he responds quite carefully to this. Uh, he received a short letter from the Conservative MP, Michael Joplin. My own reaction to the film, Maudlin told him, was that it contained in some passages a degree of violence very hard to justify, though I must admit, as a whole, it was brilliantly made. Um, during Murphy's four-year tenure, BBFC decisions were challenged in court, and most notably with an attempt at prosecution of the film Last Tango in Paris for obscenity. We have a number of very thick files on Last Tango. Um, <laughs> my favourite doesn't relate to the ultimately unsuccessful prosecution of the film as a whole, in which the judge found that under British law, a film distributor could only be prosecuted for depraving or corrupting people who physically handled the film, not an audience who watched it projected onto a screen. Completely bizarre. Um, but the case that we have details of here is even more bizarre than that. In 1973, the Archdeacon of Oxford, a canon, a vicar and two other men, were charged with conspiracy to publish obscene material when they all signed a letter protesting against the release of Last Tango, and they sent this letter to members of Oxford City Council. And to make the point clear, they included with the letter a two-page extract of the script from the film. So shocked were a number of the council members to receive this text in their homes, and to be fair, it's quite the least pleasant dialogue from the film they could have chosen, <laughs> So shocked with it, they called the police and complained at what had arrived through the letterbox. And Thames Valley Police duly questioned all five men who'd signed this letter, took statements from the two councillors who complained. And they then sent these statements, uh, these statements through to the Department for Public Prosecution, asking how they should proceed. And the file records the DPP's response. I can't imagine a more fatuous exercise than this. People who try to stop this film are hauled up for prosecution because they quote an extract or the producers get off scot-free. What are we coming to? His more practical colleague just writes underneath, seen thanks, we can only advise, no further action called for. Um, the one film the BBFC refused to certificate was um, Mera Orkulikin's Spresh, uh, probably pronounced that very badly, more about the language of love, which is a Swedish sex documentary sequel. The original was simply called The Language of Love, which was first released in Europe in 1970. 
And in the summer of 1974, it was showing at a cinema on Charing Cross Road. And a series of campaigners such as Raymond Blackburn and, in fact, Lord Longford went to see the film and subsequently sent detailed complaints to the police who decided that they very much needed to see it. <laughs> I handed the tickets to an usherette, reported the chief inspector, who said, why do you want to see this film? It's sex, sex, sex all the time. The police subsequently seized the print. Um, there's a strong defence in the film on the file, actually from um, a graduate student at Oxford University. He says, I came away impressed and moved by this film. It's, a morally, impeccable, it's morally impeccable in intention and execution. If we're ever justified in saying that people in general will be better people for having seen the film, then I believe we're justified in saying it of this film. I'd be happy to recommend any of my five children to see it and my eight grandchildren when they grow up. And I suspect this letter may not be entirely serious in tone. And possibly the DPP thought so too, because very unusually the film was found to be seen and banned. But I don't want to end with cheap Swedish smut. Let's wrap up with weepy directing legend Sir Richard Darling Attenborough. And he still lives up the road on Richmond Green. How do you get a film released? Even when you're a jobbing director, it can be a struggle. For Bernard Miles in 1951, the answer was to write Harold Wilson. In 1975, Richard Attenborough didn't just want to make a film, he wanted paratroopers to invade Holland by air. But you know, if a trick works once, dear Prime Minister, I wonder if I might enlist your help in regard to the film we talked of when we had lunch on the 11th of July. As you know, it's to be based on Cornelius Ryan's book, A Bridge Too Far. Obviously, it will require enormous cooperation from the army and the parachute regiment in particular. It would be of inestimable help to me if you felt it possible to inform him, uh, the Defence Secretary Roy Mason, of your approval of the film in general. Knowing of your immense interest in the film industry, I feel that I might ask you this favour. Yours, Dickie A. <laughs> <laughs> Two days later, Howard Wilson's office wrote to the Ministry of Defence. The Prime Minister has asked me to let you know he hopes very much that full cooperation will be given to Mr Attenborough. You see, it is show friends after all. Briefly far, quite unusual production because it was funded by the independent producer Joseph Levine with his own money, about 15 million quid. And the screenwriter William Goldman asked him why he was doing it. Levine told him... I'm 70 years old and I want to do this thing. Goldman writes about the awe this extremely large investment inspired. Everyone, I think, was affected by the personal financing of the film. The crew in Holland, when we got to shooting, talked of it all the time. They hustled their tails off. I've never seen a crew work as hard. Everyone was affected, apart from the Ministry of Defence, who were extremely concerned about the cost of the operation to themselves, to the point where the production suggested pointedly it would be an awful shame if they were forced to use the Dutch army instead. This rather glossy mission briefing was how the army justified all the movie-making shenanigans to itself, turned the shooting of the crucial airdrop scenes in the film into exercise new market, and they decided that the force would stay out uh, in Holland for another week, mounting a series of 24 exercises for the troops they brought out, 24-hour exercises for the troops they brought out, and that, that, that was Gull's Wing, uh, to kind of squeeze the maximum benefit from Joseph Levine's investment. And meanwhile, Attenborough politely rebuffed any of the MOD's requests for script changes. Ultimately, the British government works with a lot of industries. Nuclear power, weapons manufacturers, arms dealers, oil and gas firms. They don't scare easily. Over these two lectures, we've seen many examples of the British government acting against films out of what generally seems now a seriously misplaced concern over the effects of their content. Film is very powerful, so they are fearful. In the past, government has responded to that equation. Film is powerful, we must be careful. 
But I think in general, to say flat that governments are frightened of the film business, I think on the evidence, that really might be a bridge too far. Thank you very much. <laughs>